Good morning. Good to see you guys. All right, go ahead, take your Bible, if you brought one with you. We are going to be in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you might want to look around on the seats that are around you. Uh, there might be a blue and white paperback Bible. Um, and so if you do not have a Bible with you, you can use that one now. But maybe you don't have a Bible, period. Or maybe the Bible that you have at home is written kind of like in this old language that's hard for you to understand. And so please take this one with you if you find it easier to read because we want you to be able to interact with the Word of God every single day in a way that you're going to be able to understand. And so, uh, like I said, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 uh, here at Mercy Hill. I don't know if this is maybe your first time here with us or you've been here a couple times and maybe you're starting to notice a pattern. But what we like to do is we like to pick books of the Bible and we like to go through them verse by verse as much as we can. And one of the great blessings of being able to do that is that you get to see every now and again kind of um, like what might be obscure Bible passages that, uh, that you've never heard of before, you've never seen before. Like I was speaking just a few weeks ago to somebody that's here today, and they were telling me about how, you know, like they had heard of this guy named John the Baptist, but they never really knew anything about him or what he did. And us going through the book of Luke has kind of given them a glimpse of who John the Baptist is. Today, though, we're not in one of those obscure passages of the Bible. We're actually in one that you have probably heard before if you've gone to church for any length of time. Because this is a passage in the Bible that, as preachers will say, it'll preach, so to speak. There's like a lot of very applicable things in it. There's a lot of good you know, illustrations for your life and how you should be a Christian and how you should live. It might be things like how you should make such a priority and have urgency to share the gospel. You might have heard this, this passage preached and people talk about the power that faith can have in your own life. Or you might have heard the, uh, just how it, it calls us to help needy people. But what I hope to show you in this passage today is an aspect of the authority that Jesus has that should radically transform your life. And doesn't just transform your life, but it has transformed all of history, what we're going to see today. So we are in Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. I'm going to read the first couple verses for us. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Okay, let's stop here just for a second. Let's, let's try. <laughs> what is happening? What is going on? Let's, let's just get some context here. So what's been happening so far in, in, in this book of Luke, if this is one of the first times you're here with us today, what we've been finding is that Jesus in this period is really kind of beginning his ministry. He's called some of his first disciples. He's been going around traveling through some of these cities that have been mentioned like Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And he's been teaching and people have been amazed at the authority with which he teaches. 
And they've been amazed at some of the things that he's said. But more than that, he's been, they've been amazed at the things that he's been doing. He has been healing people of their sicknesses. He's been healing people of diseases. He's been controlling nature itself. And so Jesus at this point has a lot of attention that is focused on him. To the point where it's not just ordinary people that are coming to listen to him teach anymore. Did you notice? It's not just ordinary people here. But what does it say? It says that it is Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now the only reason that they would want to come and listen to Jesus. Because these are the people that knew the book the best. They were Pharisees. They were the ones who were teaching this book. But they wanted to come and listen to what Jesus had to say. And they were coming from all over it says that they were coming from Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, all to sit in this little house where Jesus is teaching people. And so they're in this little house. It's so crowded that this group of men that have brought their paralyzed friend, supposedly to be healed of his paralysis so that he can walk again, they bring him in and they can't get him to Jesus. Because this little house is so packed full of people and no one is willing to get out of the way so that they can bring their friend to Jesus and he be healed of this paralysis and walk again. So what do they do? Well, they get a little creative and they say, okay, if we can't get through the front door, we'll just have to come through the ceiling. And so uh, you might have said that they, they get on the roof and they start digging through the tiles and they lower their friend down. So you might need to know a little bit about houses at this period in time. In this period in time, a person's house would have been a very basic, probably square house with a second story that was just the roof that they would use as a second workspace or living space you know, to do the things that they needed to do, just like you have the things you need to do in your house. But it wouldn't be accessible from the inside of the house. There'd be a staircase on the outside. And so apparently what they did was they took their friend up the staircase outside and they went on the roof and they started to dig away at the clay tiles that were on the roof. And below that there would have been some organic material like sticks and straw and hay and things like that. And they would have taken that away. And then they would have taken away these wooden, bigger wooden sticks and beams that were supporting the weight of the roof. And they would have taken that away all while Jesus apparently just keeps going uninterrupted. Teaching these people. I'm sure people are wondering, like, what is happening up there? I'm sure the owner of the house is like, what are you doing? I hope you plan on paying for this. Right? But these men were desperate to get their friend in front of Jesus. And not only did they dig away at the roof so that they could see Jesus... They rigged up some kind of device, I don't know, or maybe they just tied ropes onto the four corners of his bed and lowered him down, but they were creative, and they said, we've got to get him in front of Jesus, and so they drop him smack, smack dab in front of Jesus right there. At this point, I mean, you've got to notice something. I don't, this is not the main point of this passage of Scripture, but you've got to notice that at this point in the story, there are very clearly two different groups of people in this story. There were the people that were there to listen to Jesus and to learn from him that were so selfish that they were not willing to make a path for this poor, pitiful, paralyzed man to get to Jesus and be healed. Everyone there knew what Jesus had been doing. 
They knew that he was capable of doing this, but they were so selfish and wanted to their place to be so close to Jesus that they were not willing to get out of the way so that other people could get to him. It is good for you to sit at the feet of Jesus. It is good for you as a follower of Christ to have that laser intent focus and to want to be near Christ. But I'm going to tell you something today that is not very popular for you to hear and for me to say. But it's this. It is possible that you as a Christian can be so wrapped up in your own problems and in your own life that you forget that there are other people that need to get to Jesus too. You can be so wrapped up in the own things that you have going on that you forget that you can just scoot aside. That it is okay for a little bit for you to take your problems off of the table so that other people can have theirs dealt with too. We have got to remember that because there is clearly a second group of people in this passage. There are this man's friends who are relentless And not only are they getting out of the way for this man to come to Jesus, they are overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle so that he can get to him because they know that if I could just get my friend to Jesus, he will do his work. They know that. And so they carry him who knows how far. It says they're coming from all over the place. And they carry him who knows how far. And they they bring him to this place where Jesus is. And they can't get to him because these selfish people won't get out of the way. And so they don't give up. They overcome this obstacle. They say, fine, we'll lower him through the roof. And so they, t- they do the work of carrying him up onto the roof. And then they even take the risk of someone getting ticked at them for ruining their home. And they dig away at the roof, and then they even get creative in what they have to do. And they, they lower him through the roof so that he can be right in front of Jesus. One obstacle, two obstacles, three obstacles do not keep these men from bringing their friend to Jesus. Because they know that if, if they could just get him in front of Jesus, Jesus would do his work. Which one of those people are you? Examine your life. Are you so selfish that you are not willing to get out of the way for other people to come to Jesus? Or have you adopted a mentality for your life that says, I will do whatever it takes to bring my needy friends to Jesus because if I could just get them to Jesus, he will do his work. We're not even halfway through this story yet. Isn't that amazing? And so this man is dropped before Jesus. And then Jesus says something to him. I'm going to start again in verse 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And this is where this story really starts to get interesting. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus' reaction to this man being lowered right in front of him is surprising for two reasons. Number one, it's surprising because of what he did not say. Number two, it's surprising because of what he did say. 
Let's look at what he did not say first. It's surprising because Jesus did not say, be healed. That's what everybody was expecting to happen. Jesus has been traveling throughout this region, healing people of their diseases. He's been controlling nature. He's been giving sight to blind people. He has been working all these miracles, and these friends are bringing this man to Jesus. And this man is excited to get to Jesus because he knows that if he could just get to Jesus, he will probably be able to walk again. But Jesus did not say, be healed. Imagine for just a second that you're this man's friends looking in through this hole that you've created in the ceiling. And you hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. Your first thought is going to be, is that it? Like, um, Jesus, aren't you forgetting something? Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but this guy isn't royalty. We're not just carrying him around on a bed for fun. He can't walk. He's a cripple. Heal him. Can you imagine the disappointment you would probably feel as this man's friend? I've carried this guy all this way. Now I've got to carry him back even after he met Jesus. Maybe go a step further. Imagine if you were the man himself. And Your friends have been telling you this whole time that if you could just get to Jesus, you'll be healed. And you'll be able to walk. And you're not healed. And now you're thinking, I'm going to leave this place the same way that I came in. Unchanged. Experiencing the same problems that I had yesterday. And that I've been experiencing for the rest of my life. Imagine the disappointment that you would feel. If you were that man. The reality is that some of you don't have to imagine that disappointment. Some of you are experiencing significant issues in your life. Things that have been plaguing you for years. Maybe it is a debilitating disease. Or maybe it is degenerative health. That it just seems to continue going down, 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 down. And there doesn't seem to be anything that God is going to do to heal you. It's no secret. There are many people in our church that have for a long time desired to have children. And they just can't. And it's just not happening. And you have been crying out to God for years. Saying, God, would you bless us with a child? And you feel as if you are this man. And you've been told that if you could just get to Jesus and if you could just reach out to him, he would work in your life. And you find yourself sitting here and all you want is for God to do something in your life. And you don't see it happening. At this point, it's good for us to remember one thing that we can see in this story. And that's this, is that God is not... And Jesus is not ignoring this man's problem. He's not ignoring this man's problem. He actually acknowledges his problem. What you need to remember in your life is the same thing this man needs to remember in his life. It's that God's primary objective is not to carry out your plan the way you would have it carried out. God's primary objective is to carry out his plan and to accomplish his purposes. 
here at Mercy Hill, I know that there are many people in here that haven't been coming here very long, and so um, it's important for you to know, like, our, what we see is our mission here at Mercy Hill. We have this mission statement that we kind of constructed and put together, and it really helps us as a church laser focus on what our goals are and what we're trying to do and what we should be for and what we should be about. And we here at Mercy Hill say that our mission is to make disciples by doing four things. Number one, we proclaim the gospel to the lost. Number two, we gather Christians into Christ-centered community. Number three, we transform them into the image of Christ. And number four, we equip them to make more disciples. Now that number three, transform them into the image of Christ. If you are a Christian and you're sitting here today, part of this church's mission and purpose is that you every day would look more and more like Jesus. And part of what that means is very applicable to this story because what it means is that every single day, your goals and your purposes and your uh, hopes and dreams in your life become less and less about you and more and more about him. That your goals transform to be his goals. Let me give you a couple of practical examples. Listen, God's desire is not that you pursue rest and relaxation to relieve yourself of stress. God's desire is that you rest in him and that you be reliant on him to keep going when it gets hard. God's desire for you, teenager, is not that you would graduate high school with a great GPA, get a full ride to college, make a lot of money, and have a successful career. That is not God's desire for you. God's desire for you is that you would forsake the treasure of this world for the treasure that will be found in the next. God's desire for you, parents, is not that you raise your kids so that they are safe and risk-averse. Have you thought about the fact that God's desire for you as a parent is to raise your children so that they are prepared to risk everything to take the gospel to those that do not have it? Parents, I'm, I'm a parent myself, young parent. I have a son, he's not even two years old yet. I have another child that's in the womb right now, right? And I have even been thinking to myself as I've been looking through this passage, how do I plan to speak to Nolan, my son, in such a way that one day he will be prepared to put his life on the line in a country where he could be killed for being a Christian so that other people could hear the message that has brought us so much hope. As a parent, have you thought about that? Or has your only thought been, how can I keep my kids safe? How can I make my kid happy? How can I give them a future and a chance your thought as a Christian parent that is being transformed to the image of Christ should be, how can I prepare my kids to put their life on the line so that more people can hear about Jesus? God's desire is not for you to live out your retirement in luxury and pursuing boring hobbies. God's desire for you is to live out the last days of your life instilling the wisdom that you have into a younger generation so that they can carry the gospel forward. Listen. When we see this man, who obviously desired to be healed, and Jesus had different plans for him, it's very easy to get wrapped up in your own desires and your own wants in this life, 
But you've got to remember that God's desire is not for you to live out your life so that you can carry out your plan. God's desire is for you to conform your life to his plan. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Your life is not your own, but the life I live, I live in faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. God's desire is for you to conform your life to his plan. But this moment where Jesus is speaking to this man was not just surprising because of what he did not say. He didn't say, be healed, but it's surprising because of what he did say. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Whoa, that's a little unexpected. That's not what I was coming here for. I guess, thank you. Ladies, this is like you walking into your salon, asking your hairdresser to cut off a couple of inches and give you just a nice little trim, make it nice and neat, and you walk out of there with a perm. Something you completely weren't expecting, something you weren't asking for, something you didn't think you needed, but obviously somebody else thought you needed, so you're slightly offended that they've done this, that they've taken the liberty to deal with something that is so personal to you, important to you, your hair, and do something you didn't ask for. That's exactly what happened to this man. He did not come into this place to Jesus in order to be forgiven for his sin. He came to this place so that he could walk again. It's slightly offensive to tell someone you can be forgiven for your sin because when you are telling them that, you are also assuming that they are a sinner. Only sinners need to be forgiven of their sins. So you can imagine this man might even be slightly offended. Not only did Jesus not heal me, he called me a sinner. And he forgave him for his sins. And it's even hard for us to look at this man as a sinner. As someone that this is his primary need. Because we look at him and this is a poor, pitiful man that has never been able to walk and has to be carried by his friends everywhere he goes. It's hard to look at somebody like that and say, that person is a sinner. It's really hard to look at a cute little baby and say, that baby is a sinner. It's really hard for us. As we live in this place and we see a rather large homeless population wandering the streets, sitting on the benches, sleeping in the park, and say, that person is a sinner because they are so full of pity and our desire is to help them, not to criticize them. But again, we find a reality here that we've got to come to terms with from this passage and that's this. This paralyzed man's primary, primary need is not that he would walk again. His primary need is that he was a sinner. The people that you see wandering the streets in Shepherdsville, their primary need is not shelter and food. They're sinners. Your primary need as a person that has all those things is not to fix your financial problems. It's not to fix your struggling marriage. It's not to get to the next step in your career. Your primary problem in this life is this fact. You are a sinner. Sorry to break it to you. And that is your primary need. And that is the reality of every person in this world. And if you have what this man has just received, 
the forgiveness of your sins, you have everything. You are quite literally the most wealthy person in the world at this point. Let me prove it to you. You might have heard um, before that like if the apocalypse were ever to happen or like if there were nuclear war ever to break out, then like the most wealthy people in the world would instantly be the people that had the most gas and the most bullets and guns, right? You might have heard that before. Because those are the people that, it, look, it doesn't matter if you had a fifty dollars or $100,000 car. If you ain't got gas, that car is worth nothing. It don't matter. It doesn't matter if you had decades worth of savings in your 401k. It's worth nothing now. It's not going to buy you anything. There's nothing backing that money. It doesn't matter if you had jewelry boxes filled with jewelry that would match any outfit that you had so that you would always look presentable to anybody that you would ever go in any situation you would ever be in. That jewelry is worthless. The thing that's now going to give you power to control people is not what you're wearing, but it's the gun that you're carrying on your hip. That's what people have said before. It's because the things that you gather in this world, you can't always take it with you to the next. You've, and you've probably heard it said before that things that you gain in this world, as you're alive here, you can't take with you to heaven. You know that's actually not true? That's not true. Because there is one thing that you can gain in this world that you can take with you to heaven. But there's only one thing. And it just so happens to be very ironic because it so happens that the one thing that you need the most in heaven can only be obtained in this life here. Now. The most valuable thing in your next life can only be obtained in this one. And that is the forgiveness of your sins. Each person in this room will live to be 60, 70. You might even get up there to 100. Maybe beyond that. Some of you are going to die much sooner than that. And there is only one thing in that span of all your years that you can gain that will go with you to the next life. And that is the forgiveness of your sins. That makes the forgiveness of your sin the most valuable thing you could ever obtain in this world. Because when you die, there are no second chances. You're not going to have the opportunity to be forgiven once you die. You have one chance here and one chance now. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this and get like an emotional response out of you. This is the truth. You can drive away out of this parking lot and be T-boned by a car and die. You could die on the job this week. You could have a heart attack at night and be dead. It's a reality of life. You have one chance to be forgiven for your sin. Do not pass that up. So Jesus tells this man, you are forgiven of your sins, the most precious gift he could ever receive. But immediately, as soon as he says that, the people who are there watching begin questioning him. Let me read it again. It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You might have heard, like if you've been around Christians Maybe your grandparents or you, your parents were Christians and you grew up hearing the term blasphemy. Blasphemy. 
And maybe you thought that like blasphemy is like cussing. You know, sorry to burst your bubble. Cussing is not blasphemy. It's not what it is. Blasphemy is defaming the name of God. Somehow making God less by something that you say. Either by saying something that is not true about God and lying about God. Or in this case, as Jesus is being accused of blasphemy, it's saying something that is true about yourself or someone else that is only true of God. And so, in a sense, you are putting somebody on an equal level with God. And that's exactly why they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And guess what? They're right. They are exactly right in what they're saying. We often view the Pharisees in the, in the stories in the Bible as the bad guys. But you know what? A lot of times they're right about what they're saying and what they're teaching. For Jesus to say this is blasphemy if he's not God. But Jesus responds to them, and he tells them this. He asks them a question. He says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus knows what they're questioning in their hearts. And he says to them, which of these is easier to say to this man? Your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed and go home. Obviously, the answer to that question is that it is easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say that because any of us in this room could say to another person, your sins are forgiven. And there is quite literally no way for you to prove that you've actually forgiven your sins. There's not tangible evidence that this has happened. But if Jesus were to say, rise, pick up your bed and walk, that's really hard to say because if you say that and it doesn't happen, you're a fraud. And Jesus recognizes that in front of everybody. It's like this logic that you can't argue with. And then Jesus says to the man, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Like I said, Jesus had a plan from the beginning. And it's the plan that brought him and brought God the most glory in this instance of where he did not just reveal to everyone that he does in fact have the authority. He did heal him. And he says, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sin. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. The fact that Jesus is able to perform miracles that are harder then forgiving him of his sin is the proof and the evidence that he is capable and he does have the authority to forgive sin. 
Up to this point, what we've been seeing in the book of Luke is that Jesus has authority over many things. We've seen in chapter 4, 31 through 37, that Jesus has authority over demons. He can cast them out. They come and they, they bow before him and they grovel at his feet. In 4, 38 through 41, Jesus has authority over sickness that plagues people. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus had authority over nature itself and the laws of physics. In 5, 21 through 16, Jesus has authority over the disease. We saw that last week as Jesus cleansed this leper of the debilitating disease. But here... What we see is that Jesus has authority over something that no one before him and no one after him has ever had. There have been prophets that have had authority over nature. There have been prophets before him that had authority over sickness. There have been prophets before him that had the ability to do many things, but no one has ever been on par with God to forgive sin. But he does. Jesus has the authority that makes him different than any other prophet that there has ever been and any other prophet that there ever will be. If your greatest need as a person is the forgiveness of your sins, if the greatest problem that you have is that you are a sinner, then your greatest need is a savior. And what we see here in this passage is that we have one. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus has the authority to address your greatest need. Jesus has the authority to address this man's greatest need. And that is what we call the gospel. The word gospel means good news. There is no better news than the fact that we can learn and see that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. That makes this the most amazing news. And as I said earlier, that our mission as Mercy is to make disciples first by proclaiming the gospel to the lost. That's what we're proclaiming to them. Your greatest need, your greatest problem in this life is that you're a sinner, but there is a Savior that can address that. His name is Jesus. And I know that if all I could do is get you to him, he will do his work. And he will save you from that sin. This is good news. And it's not just good news. It's the best news that we could have. I don't know where all of you in this room sit today. What I do know is that each of you has the same problem. The forgiveness of your sin. And look, I don't want you to hear me trivializing the issues that you're dealing with in your life. I know that some of you are going through horrible awful, tragic, scary things. And so that this does not trivialize those things, but it is the truth. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sin. And the good news to you today is that there is a Savior that has the authority to forgive you of your sins. This man walked out of this house that he was lowered into not just with the ability to walk, but with a clean conscience and a purified heart. That is the most valuable thing that you could ever have in this world. And you can have one today. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird like stand up or raise your hand or to walk forward. But I am going to ask you 
If you think that you need to be forgiven of your sin, or if you think that maybe you have been forgiven of your sin and you just haven't told anybody about that, if you've come to a place where beforehand you did not see Jesus as your Savior, but now you do, I'm just going to ask you to do this. Come and talk to me after the service. Talk to Nate after the service. And we'll just talk with you about what that means in your life and about maybe the next step that you need to take because there is a step that you need to take. Let me pray. Lord, there is possibly no greater thing that we could sing about than the fact that your son, Jesus, has been given the authority to forgive us of our sin. And I pray that in this time, God, that you would humble hearts, that you would soften us to the point where we see that that is our greatest need. But Lord, would you convict us and would you show us that you have not just come to call us sinners, you have come to redeem us from our sin. Father, work in our hearts today. Lord, I pray that if it's not us that needs to be forgiven of our sin, Lord, would you help us adopt a mentality and a conviction to make our lives about you and what you are doing and that part of that is that we would strive and that we would struggle and that we would push to bring others to you because we know that if they could just get to Jesus, he would do his work. Lord, do your work. And use us if you so choose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.